0: section number 21 of the rise and fall of the confederate government volume 1 a this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by Sean stipsky the rise and fall of the confederate government by jefferson davis volume 1 a part 2 chapter 11 the right of secession the law of unlimited partnerships, the perpetual union of the Articles of Confederation, and the more perfect union of the Constitution. The important powers conferred upon the Federal Government and the fundamental principles of the Compact the same in both systems. The right to resume grants when failing to fulfill their purposes expressly and distinctly asserted in the adoption of the Constitution. The right of secession, that subject which, beyond all others, ignorance, prejudice, and political rancor, have combined to cloud with misstatements and misapprehensions, is a question easily to be determined in the light of what has already been established with regard to the history and principles of the Constitution. It is not something standing apart by itself, a factious creation, outside of, and antagonistic to the Constitution as might be imagined by one deriving his ideas from the political literature most current of late years. So far from being against the Constitution or incompatible with it, we contend that if the right to secede is not prohibited to the States, and no power to prevent it is expressly delegated to the United States, it remains as reserved to the States or the people, from whom all the powers of the general government were derived. The compact between the States which formed the Union was in the nature of a partnership between individuals without limitation of time, and the recognized law of such partnerships is thus stated by an eminent lawyer of Massachusetts in a work intended for popular use. If the articles between the partners do not contain an agreement that the partnership shall continue for a specified time, it may be dissolved at the pleasure of either partner but no partner can exercise this power wantonly or injuriously to the other partners without making himself responsible for the damage he thus causes if there be a provision that the partnership shall continue a certain time this is binding we have seen that a number of sovereign free and independent states during the war of the revolution entered into a partnership with one another which was not only unlimited in duration but expressly declared to be a perpetual union yet when that union failed to accomplish the purposes for which it was formed the parties withdrew separately and independently one after another without any question made of their right to do so and formed a new association one of the declared objects of this new partnership was to form a more perfect union this certainly did not mean more perfect in respect of duration for the former union had been declared perpetual and perpetuity admits of no addition it did not mean that it was to be more indissoluble for the delegates of the states in ratifying the former compact of union had expressed themselves in terms that could scarcely be made more stringent they then said and we do further solemnly plight and engage the faith of our respective constituents that they shall abide by the determinations of the united states and congress assembled on all questions which by the said confederation are submitted to them and that the articles thereof shall be inviolably observed by the states we respectively represent and that the union shall be perpetual the formation of a more perfect union was accomplished by the organization of a government more complete in its various branches legislative executive and judicial and by the delegation of this government of certain additional powers or functions which had previously been exercised by the governments of the respective states especially in providing the means of operating directly upon individuals for the enforcement of its legitimately delegated authority there was no abandonment nor modification of the essential principle of a compact between sovereigns which applied to the one case as fully as to the other there was not the slightest intimation of so radical a revolution as the surrender of the sovereignty of the contracting parties would have been The additional powers conferred upon the Federal Government by the Constitution were merely transfers of some of those possessed by the State Governments, not subtractions from the reserved and inalienable sovereignty of the political communities which conferred them. It was merely the institution of a new agent who, however enlarged his powers might be, would still remain subordinate and responsible to the source from which they were derived, that of the sovereign people of each State it was an amended union not a consolidation it is a remarkable fact the very powers of the federal government and prohibitions to the states which are most relied upon by the advocates of centralism as incompatible with state sovereignty were in force under the old confederation when the sovereignty of the states was expressly recognized the general government had then as now the exclusive right and power of determining on peace and war making treaties and alliances, maintaining an army and navy, granting letters of marque and reprisal, regulating coinage, establishing and controlling the postal service. Indeed, nearly all of the so called characteristic powers of sovereignty exercised by the federal government under the existing Constitution except the regulation of commerce and of levying and collecting its revenues directly instead of through the interposition of the state authorities. The exercise of these first-named powers was prohibited to the States under the old compact, without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled, but no one has claimed that the Confederation had thereby acquired sovereignty. Entirely in accord with these truths are the arguments of Mr. Madison and the Federalist to show that the great principles of the Constitution are substantially the same as those of the Articles of Confederation. He says, i ask what are these principles do they require that in the establishment of the constitution the states should be regarded as distinct and independent sovereigns they are so regarded by the constitution proposed do these principles in fine require that the powers of the general government should be limited and that beyond this limit the states should be left in possession of their sovereignty and independence we have seen that in the new government as in the old the general powers are limited and that the States, in all unenumerated cases, are left in the enjoyment of their sovereign and independent jurisdiction. "The truth is," he adds, "that the great principles of the Constitution proposed by the Convention may be considered less as absolutely new than as the expansion of principles which are found in the Articles of Confederation." In the papers immediately following he establishes this position in detail by an analysis of the principal powers delegated to the federal government, showing that the spirit of the original instructions to the convention had been followed in revising the federal constitution and rendering it adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the union the present union owes its very existence to the dissolution by separate secession of its members of the former union which as we have thus seen as to its organic principles rested upon precisely the same foundation The right to withdraw from the association results in either case from the same principles, principles which, I think, have been established on an impregnable basis of history, reason, law, and precedent. It is not contended that this right should be resorted to for insufficient cause, or, as the writer already quoted on the law of partnership, says, wantonly and injuriously to the other partners, without responsibility of the seceding partner for any damage thus done. No association can be dissolved without a likelihood of the occurrence of incidental questions concerning common property and mutual obligations, questions sometimes of a complex and intricate sort. If a wrong be perpetuated in such case, it is a matter for determination by the means usually employed among independent and sovereign powers, negotiation, arbitration, or in the failure of these, by war with which, unfortunately, Christianity and civilization have not yet been able entirely to dispense. But the suggestion of possible evils does not at all affect the question of right. There is no great principle in the affairs either of individuals or of nations that is not liable to such difficulties in its practical application. But, we are told, there is no mention made of secession in the Constitution. Mr. Everett says, The states are not named in it the word sovereignty does not occur in it. The right of secession is as much ignored in it as the procession of the equinoxes. We have seen how very untenable is the assertion that the states are not named in it, and how much pertinency or significance in the omission of the word sovereignty. The pertinent question that occurs is, why was so obvious an attribute of sovereignty not expressly renounced if it was intended to surrender it? It certainly existed it was not surrendered therefore it still exists this would be a more natural and rational conclusion than that it had ceased to exist because it was not mentioned the simple truth is that it would not have been a very extraordinary thing to incorporate into the constitution any express provision for the secession of the states and dissolution of the union its founders undoubtedly desired and hoped that it would be perpetual against the proposition for power to coerce a state the argument was that it would be a means not of preserving but of destroying the union it was not for them to make arrangements for its termination a calamity which there was no occasion to provide for in advance sufficient for their day was the evil thereof it is not usual either in partnerships between men or in treaties between governments to make provision for a dissolution of the partnership or a termination of the treaty, unless there be some special reason for a limitation of time. Indeed, in treaties the usual formula includes a declaration of their perpetuity, but in either case the power of the contracting parties, or any of them, to dissolve the compact, on terms not damaging to the rights of the other parties, is not the less clearly understood it was not necessarily in the Constitution to affirm the right of secession, because it was an attribute of sovereignty, and the States had reserved all of which they had not delegated. The right of the people of several States to resume the powers delegated by them to the common agency was not left without positive and ample assertion, even at a period when it had never been denied. The ratification of the Constitution by Virginia has already been quoted, in which the people of that State, through their convention, Did expressly declare and make known that the powers granted under the constitution being derived from the people of the united states may be resumed by them whensoever the same shall be perverted to their injury or oppression and that every power not granted thereby remains with them and at their will new york and rhode island were no less explicit both declaring that the powers of government may be reassumed by the people whenever it shall become necessary to their happiness These expressions are not mere obiter dicta, thrown out incidentally, and entitled only to be regarded as an expression of opinion by their authors. Even if only such, they would carry great weight, as the deliberately expressed judgment of enlightened contemporaries, but they are more, they are parts of the very acts or ordinances by which these states ratified the Constitution and acceded to the Union, and cannot be detached from them. If they are invalid, the ratification itself was invalid, for they are inseparable. By inserting these declarations in their ordinances, Virginia, New York, and Rhode Island formally, officially, and permanently declared their interpretation of the Constitution as recognizing the right of secession by the resumption of their grants. By accepting this ratification with this declaration incorporated, the other states has formally accepted the principle which it asserted I am well aware that it has been attempted to construe these declarations concerning the right of the people to reassume their delegations of power, especially in the terms employed by Virginia, people of the United States, as having reference to the idea of one people, in mass or in the aggregate. But it can scarcely be possible that any candid and intelligent reader who has carefully considered the evidence already brought to bear on the subject can need further argument to disabuse his mind of that political fiction. The people of the United States, from whom the powers of the federal government were derived, could have been no other than the people who ordained and ratified the Constitution, and this, it has been shown beyond the power of denial, was done by the people of each state, severally and independently. No other people were known to the authors of the declarations above quoted. Mr. Madison was a leading member of the Virginia Convention, which made that declaration as well as the General Convention that drew up the Constitution. We have seen what his idea of the people of the United States was, not the people as composing one great body, but the people as composing thirteen sovereignties. Mr. Lee of Westmoreland, Light Horse Harry, in the same convention, answering Mr. Henry's objection to the expression, We the People, said, It. The Constitution is now submitted to the people of Virginia. If we do not adopt it, it will be always null and void as to us. Suppose it was found proper for our adoption and becoming the government of the people of Virginia, by what style should it be done? Ought we not make use of the name of the people? No other style would be proper. It would certainly be superfluous, after all that has been presented heretofore, to add any further evidence of the meaning that was attached to these expressions by their authors. The people of the United States were in their minds the people of Virginia, the people of Massachusetts, and the people of every other state that should agree to unite. They could have meant only that the people of their respective states, who had delegated certain powers to the federal government, in ratifying the Constitution and acceding to the Union, reserve to themselves the right, in event of the failure of their purposes, to resume or reassume those powers by seceding from the same union. Finally, the absurdity of the construction attempted to be put upon these expressions will be evident from a very brief analysis. If the assertion of the right of reassumption of their powers was meant for the protection of the whole people, the people in the mass, the people in the aggregate, of a consolidated republic, against whom or what was it to protect them by whom were the powers granted to be perverted to the injury or oppression of the whole people by themselves or by some of the states all of whom according to this hypothesis had been consolidated into one as no danger could have been apprehended from either of these it must have been against the government of the united states that the provision was made that is to say the whole people of a republic make this declaration against a government established by themselves and entirely subject to their own control under a constitution which contains provision for its own amendment by this very same whole people whenever they may think proper is it not a libel upon the statesmen of that generation to attribute to their grave and solemn declarations a meaning so vapid and absurd To those who argue that the grants of the Constitution are fatal to the reservation of sovereignty by the States, the Constitution furnishes a conclusive answer in the amendment which was coeval with the adoption of the instrument, and which declares that all powers not delegated to the government of the Union were reserved to the States or to the people. As sovereignty was not delegated by the States, it was necessarily reserved. It would be superfluous to answer arguments against implied powers of the States. None are claimed by implication, because all not delegated by the States remained with them, and it was only in the abundance of caution that they expressed the right to resume such parts of their unlimited power as was delegated for the purposes enumerated. As there be those who see danger to the perpetuity of the Union in the possession of such power by the States, and insist that our fathers did not intend to bind the States together by a compact no better than a rope of sand it may be well to examine their position. From what have dangers to the union arisen? Have they sprang from too great restriction on the exercise of the granted powers, or from the assumption by the general government of power claimed by implication? The whole record of our union answers from the latter only. Was this tendency to usurpation caused by the presumption of paramount authority in the general government, or by the assertion of the right of a state to resume the powers it had delegated? reasonably and honestly it cannot be assigned to the latter let it be supposed that the whole people had recognized the right of a state of the union peaceably and independently to resume the powers which peaceably and independently she had delegated to the federal government would not this have been potent to restrain the general government from exercising its functions to the injury and oppression of such state to deny that effect would be to suppose that a dominant majority would be willing to drive a state from the union would the admission of the right of a state to resume the grants it had made have led to the exercise of that right for light and trivial causes surely the evidence furnished by the nations both ancient and modern refutes the supposition in the language of the declaration of independence all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed would not real grievances be rendered more tolerable by the consciousness of power to remove them and would not even imaginary wrongs be embittered by the manifestation of a purpose to make them perpetual to ask these questions is to answer them the wise and brave men who had at much peril and great sacrifice secured the independence of the states were as little disposed to surrender the sovereignty of the States as they were anxious to organize a general government with adequate powers to remedy the defects of the Confederation. The Union they formed was not to destroy the States, but to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. End of chapter eleven. Recording by Sean Stipsky, Kingman, Arizona.